0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For the past few months, the lessons that we've been using and reading have been focusing on um, Jesus as he was en route to Jerusalem. Finally arriving there on Passion Sunday, being crucified that week, dead buried, and then resurrected on Easter Day. Today is the second Sunday of Easter, and it's been one week since Easter. By Hebrew uh, uh, accounting, it would be eight days. Today would be eight days later. So eight days, when they said eight days, they were talking about one week later, uh, which would be Sunday. Thus, our reading today ties in nicely with our, uh, through our gospel lesson. And I want to walk through this gospel lesson so that we can capture everything and make sense of what is going on here. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So this reading begins on what is still Easter Sunday. This is the evening of Easter Sunday when this happened. The disciples were hiding behind closed doors because they were afraid. They were afraid that they were going to be treated just like Jesus, beaten, scourged, and crucified. So for fear of the Jews, they are behind closed doors, and yet Jesus came and stood before them in his glorified body, He doesn't need to walk through an an open door. But he, nevertheless, is bodily there. And he came and stood before them. And he said, peace be with you. It sounds so simple. You know, we say that to each other. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And it's almost like just a casual statement. But when Jesus says it, it's so much more than that. He's saying and doing in the act of saying, peace be with you. And he has done it. And when we say, peace be with you, it is actually, it's more than just saying, hey, how you doing? Hope you're having a great day. God's peace be with you. It is the peace of the Lord, which is the peace that we have knowing that we who are sinners are forgiven of our sins. And we remind each other. We remind each other of that. You are forgiven of your sins. Therefore, you have peace with God. So that's what he is saying in this in this greeting. When Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He adds on though, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven then. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There is so much going on in this tight little package here, this passage. All right, first, Jesus showed him his hands and his side. He showed them where he was pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities. Some people may claim that Christians blindly follow their religion without demanding evidence. No, that is not true at all. Jesus presented evidence, He supplied them with the evidence to say, Look, you can see, this is me. Put your hands, see that I am He who was crucified for you. <clears throat> Secondly, Jesus was sent into this world by God, the Father. And that's what he's saying when he says, "As uh, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Jesus was sent into this world by God, the Father, and he was sent into the world to bear witness of the truth, to suffer and die for the sins of the world. He was sent to Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He was sent there for that purpose, and he knew it. But he was sent to Jerusalem for that. But just in the same way, in that exact same way, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I am sending you with a mission. This sending was given to the disciples. In other words, it was given to the church. It wasn't just the 11 apostles that were there. It was Ten apostles, and we know, or it was no more than ten, because we know Thomas wasn't there. And then it was other disciples with them as well. But they were gathered there, and Jesus gives this commission to the church. And this is the church that we are a part of. This is the same commission that Christ has given to us. It's not... The the distinction, though, I want to make is this is not just to the individual believer. As St. Paul says, are all evangelists? No. Are all apostles? No. So Jesus is not just saying this commission is given to everybody. Take it upon yourself to go out and do what I'm now telling you to do. But he is saying that to the church has been given this mission. And God will fill the church with evangelists, apostles in their time. Preachers, musicians, whatever, administrators, everything that the church needs. All right, third thing I want to note is that Jesus Jesus breathed his spirit. He breathed out his spirit on the disciples. Yes, the Holy Spirit, Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as we confess in our creed. In the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Orthodox don't confess that. They confess that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's the distinction between us. That's part of what led up to the schism in 1043 is that, I think it was 1043, anyway, the great schism between the East and the West, part of what led up to that. I mean, Orthodox Believers like the Greek Orthodox, Russian, Latvian Orthodox, what have you. They're Christians. You know, they they confess Christ. But there's a big difference there. That we confess that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's just something to note. And here is an example of where the Spirit is proceeding from the Son, from Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes from Jesus Christ. The fourth point I want to make pertains to what we call the office of the keys. Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The church has been given the keys to unlock heaven or not. I want you to listen to Dr. Luther on this subject. He has an excellent quote. This power now is here given to all Christians, i.e., to him who is a Christian. But who is a Christian? He who believes has the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every Christian has the power which the Pope, bishops, etc. have in this case to retain or to remit sins. Do I hear then that I may hear confession, baptize, preach, give the sacrament? No. St. Paul says, "Let everything be done decently and in order." That's 1 Corinthians 14:40. We indeed all have this power, but no one is to make bold bold to exercise it publicly, except he be chosen thereto by the congregation. Privately, however, we may well use it. As when my neighbor comes and says, friend, I am distressed in my conscience, say an absolution to me. Then I may freely do this. Preach the gospel to him and tell him he is to appropriate the works of Christ." and is firmly to believe Christ's righteousness is his and his sins are Christ's. This is the greatest service I may render to my neighbor who can fully set forth what an unspeakable, mighty, and blessed consolation this is, that with one word, one man may unlock heaven and lock hell for another. Exercising the office of the keys is something that all Christians have been called to do. If your brother in Christ comes to you and confesses his sin, you have a duty to proclaim the forgiveness of sin to him. On account of the work of Christ and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of yours and your brother's sins, you have a duty to tell him, to preach that absolution to him. Now, we do. We go through this in confirmation because it, it it can be confusing. That's why I like this quote from Luther, because on the one hand, the office of the keys, which is given to all believers, means everyone in this room has a duty and an obligation to preach forgiveness to the person who comes to them, bearing their soul and repenting of their sin. But at the same time, that doesn't mean everyone in this room has the the obligation and the duty to serve as you have called me to serve, you've called me to serve in this way. And so there is a distinction, but we can handle that, right? Well, sometimes with with confirmation students, they often want to say, no, no, that's not my job to preach forgiveness, that's the pastor's job. No, it's your job, and I I might come to you. I mean, my son was in my confirmation class. I might come to him and say, forgive me, I have done this wrong and I stand guilty before God, I'm not just looking for his forgiveness, I'm looking for God's forgiveness. And he's in a position to share that with me and to say, for the sake of Jesus Christ and his suffering and death on the cross, you are forgiven of your sins. Keep that in mind. Be ready. Be ready to share forgiveness with someone who comes to you and says, I have sinned. I have fallen short. All right. Continuing on with the lesson. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my, side, my hand into his side, I will never believe. Note here that Thomas, although he's often called Doubting Thomas, yeah, this isn't doubt, this is unbelief. I mean, Christians can have doubts. We have doubts about things, and we turn to God and pray, God, remove these doubts from me, Please help me to have the faith that is strong that always turns to you and clings to christ and and the the sin of doubt is also a sin for which christ died for so you can confess the sin god i haven't believed you with my whole heart as i ought and god says yeah that's why i sent jesus christ was to die for that sin too because your faith isn't all that it should be but this isn't a case of doubting thomas this is unbelieving thomas he is an unbeliever here he is saying i will not i will not believe unless i can see and touch and feel just to frame this a little bit just consider that jesus christ has gone through his ministry which culminated in his entry into jerusalem to do the thing he knew he was going to do which is die on the cross for your sins And Thomas is standing here going, unless I see him, forget it, I'm out. So, how does Jesus respond? See you later, Thomas. I'm done with you. I don't need your kind. Of course not. That's not the nature of our Christ. No. Eight days later, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.'" It's like deja vu. Lord's Day, there they are, Lord's Day, the evening of the Lord's Day, in the same place, gathered, doors locked, and Jesus stands among them. And he turns straight to Thomas, right off the bat. He goes straight to Thomas and says, "'Put your finger here.'" Here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What a confession. What a confession. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And how beautiful is this picture Jesus came to Thomas and answered him exactly as Thomas required. Even even in his glorious resurrected body, Jesus Christ is going to condescend to Thomas, who is in unbelief, and come to him and say, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And then he makes this pronouncement that blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. Now, that's us. Because... What happened was the eyewitnesses on that first day, that Easter Sunday, those eyewitnesses shared the account of what happened with Thomas. But Thomas wouldn't believe their testimony. He had to see it for himself. Now, here we are, believers called together, trusting in the promises of Christ. Why? Because we've seen Christ? No, because we've We've believed the testimony that has been handed down to us. We have heard and we have believed. And it's not not like, good on you who can muster faith without having seen me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are blessed. He's proclaiming something. If you believe because the testimony you have received, you have found to be truthful and you have come to faith, you're blessed. It, it's, not, it's not something, and, and we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday at the men's breakfast. It's, it's not about, faith is, has many dimensions, okay? And the, the different dimensions are not just about head knowledge. That's only one dimension of faith. Uh, notitius is, is the expression that reformers used. That's just the knowledge of faith. That's not the actual saving faith. That's not putting your trust in Christ. And there are people who have a knowledge of the facts surrounding Jesus and the resurrection. There are people who will walk right down the line and agree with the facts as presented. I mean, people who are unbelievers, they're not Christian, but they'll say, yeah, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He came from Nazareth. Uh, He was a Galilean. He went around performing miracles. He had quite a following. People believed that he was the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was buried. His tomb was found empty, and there were hundreds of witnesses afterward who went to their death proclaiming he was the Messiah and he raised from the dead. And there are people who will say, all of that is true, but they're not a believer. Because faith that trusts and clings and holds to, to Christ is a faith that God gives us. It's not something you can do with your brain. And this is also why we baptize infants, because this is a faith and a trust that they can have. I used to hold Violet upside down by her head, by her, her ankle, like this, for my Baptist friends. Let's see, you see that? My little, you know, one-year-old? See how she's giggling and laughing? That's because she trusts. Yeah, she, she can have trust, even though she can't articulate it. She can have trust. Because it's a spiritual condition. It's not a mental condition. Anyway, getting off subject. All right, we come down to the end of the passage. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this is the ultimate punchline. This is what everything comes down to this. These signs were not done merely as a demonstration of power. They weren't done merely to cure the sick, although Jesus certainly had compassion on the sick. The signs were not done to teach you the secrets to prosperity and your best life now. These signs were done not so that you could emulate them like the faith Uh, the the so-called faith healers, fakes, charlatans, leading people away from the truth, pretending to do signs and miracles. That's not what these signs and miracles were given for. Every sign and every miracle was to point us to Jesus Christ and his true identity. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? He is the son of God. And that's what John is saying. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long awaited anointed one, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And indeed, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain for your sins. You who come here week after week confessing your sin. You who repent that you have done what is wrong, even when you knew what was right. You who have no righteousness of your own, but you merely come here and beat your chest and say, crying out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Rejoice. Rejoice today, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and he has taken away your sins. Therefore, you have peace with God. And therefore, we say, peace be with you. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.